page 1182 in your pew Bible, where we'll read verses 14 through verse 26 at the end of the chapter. This is just after Paul has uh, told Timothy to remember Jesus and that trustworthy saying that if we have died with him, we will live with him. Now, he says, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 2, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses that escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Congregation, uh, part of what it means to be made in God's image is to be those who speak. From the very beginning of the Bible, we find God speaking. He uh, speaks the world into existence. We, we just uh, read and sang of that from Psalm 104. From the very beginning, he speaks his word to man. And, and then eventually, in the fullness of time, he sends his son into the world, who is called in John chapter 1, the word. Our God is a God who speaks, and and so we as his people made in his image are likewise those who speak. We must therefore learn to speak aright, to use our words not to harm, but to help, to not distract from the main thing, but to remind each other of rock-solid truth. And that's what Paul is concerned with in this section of the letter, with the use and the misuse of words. So far in the book, he has told Timothy to press on and share in suffering. He's implied that there will be opposition that Timothy is going to face, and now he details 
what some of that opposition will consist of. It, it will consist of those who wish not to rightly handle the word in, in such a way as to be ready for every good work, but rather to quarrel about words. Not to rightly handle the word, but to misuse words. In this passage, we see a contrast in what it means to be word-centered. For some, it means arguing about words. For others, it means focusing on Christ, who is the word. We, of course, want to aim for the latter. But if we're going to do that, we must first understand what we need to avoid. And so look with me first at the misuse of words that Paul warns of, beginning in verse 14, where he says, charge them before God... Notice that the gravity of this this charge that he's calling for, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Who's them? It may be that the them Paul speaks of is the faithful men to whom he is to entrust the gospel, back in 2 verse 2. Or it may uh, be be speaking more broadly just to Christians in general. I think it can apply to both. Um, All Christians should be charged to do this but especially those who would lead God's flock, to not quarrel about words. And as we think about what this means, what exactly does it mean to to quarrel or not quarrel about words? Well, Paul goes on in verse 16 to speak of irreverent babble. In verse 23, he speaks of ignorant controversies. And so I think quarreling about words ought to be understood in connection with with those things, it's, it's nitpicking about minutia and majoring on minors. It's swerving from the main thing and making minor things the main thing. It's, it's becoming contentious about things that are not central and are not clear, and perhaps even introducing novel and destructive teachings. If you can remember back about a year to when we looked at 1 Timothy, Paul has there warned about this several times. In fact, it's a, it's a major theme of the book. Right at the very beginning, he he says, charge certain men not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than promoting the stewardship of the faith. He said, avoid vain discussion and having an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Over... And over, in his first letter to Timothy, Paul warned about those who would veer from the straight path and wander off into what he calls vain speculation. And now he says again, charge them before God not to do this. Verse 14, do not quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. There was an old um, Irish pastor, Thomas Withrow, who described this well. He, he talked about the danger of, of not just theological error, but, but of majoring on the minors and so emphasizing certain theological minutia or, or denominational distinctives that you end up assuming or, or perhaps even neglecting the main thing. Where those peripheral doctrines displace the, the central doctrine. Um, Withrow asks... What will be the impact of this on the individual? And his answer, which I think illustrates the end of verse 14, is this. He says, a mind that, that perhaps originally was susceptible to cultivation and development, 
that allows itself to be so occupied with rites and forms and petty little things becomes at last, just like those things, little and petty. Verse 14, it ruins them. It ruins the hearers. Those who are constantly engaging in and hearing this kind of wrangling and theological or liturgical nitpicking do not become more holy, but Withrow asks, what is is the long-term impact of, of being part of such a group? He says, after being subject to such an influence for years, a man who once gave promise of becoming a warm and gracious Christian sinks down into a mere fault finder. A theological cynic whose mind is soured against every sect except his own, snarling at everything and pleased with nothing. Now, before you write him off as as a liberal, Withrow is writing as a convinced Reformed theologian just like us. But he understood that, that sometimes those who care about doctrine can become so preoccupied with, with a minor doctrine that they lose their way. Maybe they even separate from the church because no church is pure enough. The internet is filled with people like this. Theological fault finders who make sport of, of mocking other Christians or quibbling about words. And it doesn't make us more holy. In fact, Paul says it ruins those who partake. The same would be true of those who who come to church looking just to quarrel about words. There's a danger in this kind of hair splitting or word fighting. Danger in being a controversialist who, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, craves this kind of debate. Sadly, many Reformed uh, Facebook groups or Twitter feeds or even seminaries or pews or even pulpits are are filled with this kind of spirit. Paul says it's deadly. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people more and more into ungodliness. That word that he uses for irreverent means um, profane or, or unholy. In other words, it's the kind of babble that doesn't make you progress in holiness, but it leads more and more into ungodliness. It is a a backward progression. Often one that leads you into a very lonely corner. And any who you gather around with you in that corner, Paul says it will spread like gangrene and affect them too. It it can affect the whole church. It can affect the whole federation. And can lead into more and more serious errors, of which Paul gives an example in verses 17 and 18 in Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have so swerved the truth that they are now teaching there is no future resurrection. These men have become so preoccupied with quibbling about words and establishing themselves with their novel doctrines that they have actually begun to entertain and even teach that there is no future resurrection, but that we've already come into the new heavens and new earth, and the spiritual resurrection that happens at conversion is the only resurrection. This kind of bizarre teaching, while shocking, is sadly not all that uncommon. But even in supposedly reformed circles, you have certain kinds of teaching that want to so emphasize the already that they eliminate the not yet who become so preoccupied with with novel views on the end times that they start to teach that there is no future prophecy yet to be fulfilled, but we're already in the new heavens and new earth. Christ has already come, and there's no future resurrection. 
This, this particular kind of teaching, at least the modern-day uh, version of it, is, is called hyperpreterism, a, a denial of Christ's future return. And it's, it's a heresy that continues to resurface. And Paul says this kind of teaching upsets the faith of those who hear it. Because if there is no resurrection then everything that Paul has said so far in this book about the promise of life and about death being abolished and about those who endure now reigning with Christ in the age to come, all of that is false. One pastor said this, it destroys the faith because it leads to massive disappointment. For those who are led to believe that they're experiencing the fullness of the blessings of salvation now, then the sufferings and disappointments of this life are magnified to faith-nullifying proportions. If we are in the resurrection age and it has room for a suffering and imprisoned apostle like Paul, that makes for a particular disappointment. You see how this kind of error is deadly. And I think the progression is is this, as we become preoccupied with quarreling about words in a purely verbal way that that is done not in submission to God's word, but in a spirit of intellectual competitiveness and theological one-upmanship, then we begin to get creative and swerve from the main tenets of the faith so that some of those tenets become assumed and some even undermined. It's not surprising that this kind of, of bizarre teaching called uh, like, like hyperpreterism uh, tends to thrive in, in theological circles that live for this kind of quarreling. This is an extreme example of, of where this kind of thing can lead. And it's perhaps worth noting that the particular area of theology in which this error occurs is the end times. Novel theological errors tend to focus on those areas in which there is a particular amount of mystery. There's a lot that God has not revealed about eschatology or the the study of the end times. And, And so you can actually make quite a name for yourself by claiming to have uncovered the mystery of what's to come. Think of Harold Camping. Or think of of really any, any cult or sect in the last couple of hundred years or um, any theological system that, that makes one of the, the central tenets of the faith its novel view on what's to come. This is not healthy. Paul is, is showing us there is an ever-present danger in being preoccupied with what God has not revealed. Paul's warning is in verses 14 to 18 and verse 23 remind us of the danger of foolish controversies, of, of irreverent babble and quarreling about words. And he tells Timothy with regard to those who engage in this to charge them before God not to do so. They upset the faith of God's people and are swerving from the truth. This is where this can lead. And so Paul gives a very, very firm warning. Charge them before God. Look at where this can lead. They're swerving from the truth. And yet even as he gives that warning, Paul also tells Timothy and and tells us not to worry. Even though some, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, have so swerved, Paul reminds us God knows those who are his. 
His firm foundation stands, and and even as some depart, his eternal purpose of election is not thwarted, but he knows those who are his. His foundation will stand. The church of Jesus Christ cannot be destroyed. God's purposes can't be thwarted. But he knows those who are his. And if you're following along, you might have noticed in verse 19, that's, that's in quotations, that it says that the firm foundation stands bearing this seal, and then it quotes, the Lord knows those who are his. And then again, it adds another quotation, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Those quotations actually come from Numbers chapter 16, where there was a similar rebellion in the church of the Old Testament, where even as some, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, are rebelling now against Paul's gospel, so back in Moses' day, there were those like Korah and Dathan and Abiram who rebelled against God by rejecting Moses. Numbers chapter 16, and, and Moses said to them, God knows those who are his. So in the morning, bring incense before him, and the man who God chooses shall be holy. And when they did, God said to Moses and to Aaron, separate yourselves from them, and God then consumed them. The earth swallowed up those who rebelled against God and rebelled against his servant and his, his um, uh, prophetic revelation that the truth that came through Moses, God's prophet. And by quoting from this Old Testament event where where God knows those who are his, Paul is is telling his readers not to be disillusioned when godless men swerve from the faith. Not to be upset even in in a day like this or or, or discouraged, disillusioned when when we see people deconstructing and and becoming um, ex-evangelicals and leaving the church. Say, don't be disillusioned. God knows those who are his. Uh, the second thing that, that Paul is, is doing here is he's, he's trying to help Timothy and us to realize the judgment that awaits them. The judgment that awaits those who are departing from the truth. The judgment that, that awaits those even who do not depart from those who are departing from the truth. Now, the, the second of those quotations seems to be a kind of summary of the whole message of number 16. To depart from those like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram upon whom God's judgment rests. This is a call to Timothy and those in Ephesus to separate themselves from these kinds of men and these kinds of practices that Paul has just been describing. Which he then illustrates in verses 20 and 21 with with, uh, the sort of picture of a great house. That house is, is the church. And it contains both honorable vessels, those who are gods, and then also those who belong to God, and then also dishonorable vessels, those who are not his, like the men who Paul has just said to separate from. He says, if you want to be holy and useful to the master, ready for every good work, then you need to cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Namely, from the irreverent babble, novel teaching, and arrogant word fighting that Paul has just condemned. Separate yourselves from those who engage in this, lest you become like them. That's the message of verses 19 to 21, a strong warning about the danger of the misuse of words and using them to quarrel about vain speculation. Of course, that's not all there is to this passage. Paul doesn't only give a a negative warning about what not to do, but, but he also gives a positive command for the right use of words. 
But he speaks in the rest of the section about rightly handling the word of truth from the, in fact, not just in the rest of the the section, but from the very beginning of this passage, um, Paul tells Timothy not just how he shouldn't speak, not just how he needs to charge men not to speak, but, but right from the very beginning, he tells Timothy how he should speak. Namely, in verse 14, by reminding them of these things. In the context of, of the letter, these things, in verse 14, refers back to the section just before this, to the, the trustworthy saying in verses 11 to 13, and especially the call in verse 8 to remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. These are the things that Paul wants Timothy to remind them of. And again, whether them is the the faithful men that Timothy is to train or or the church in general, it doesn't make much of a difference. For if he is to remind the leaders of the church of this so that they can teach this to the people, then ultimately it's, it's going to make its way to all the church either way. What he is to remind the church and its leaders is of the faithful gospel sayings he's just been teaching. That Jesus Christ The offspring of David is risen from the dead, that God saved us not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ to abolish death by his death on the cross and will one day take away death completely when he comes again. Going back into chapter 1, these have been the key notes in Paul's letter, and this is what Paul wants Timothy to teach. He's saying, Timothy, keep coming back to the gospel. God's people are forgetful. We need to be frequently reminded. In fact, that's why we have the Lord's Supper, in remembrance of him. Timothy, it's why I even just told you back in verse 8, you, a, a preacher of the gospel, to remember Jesus. Because we're forgetful. Even preachers. And so, Timothy, your task as a preacher is to remind them Your task is to keep reminding them of what they already know. Point them to Christ because our hearts and our minds are prone to wander. We're prone to think that that we can just move past the main thing. So Timothy, keep reminding them. In fact, that's what it means to rightly handle the word of truth in the next verse. Literally, in the Greek, it's it's translated something like, um, cut it straight. The Greek word here is the same word that's used in the Greek version of Proverbs where it says that if we trust in the Lord in all our ways, he will make our paths straight. When it says um, rightly handle, it's, he's saying, saying cut, cut straight. Paul is, is telling Timothy, if you wander off into vain specul- speculation and, and quarrel about words, that you will not be cutting it straight. But verse 18, you'll be swerving. You'll be going off the path of the main line of the Bible's main theme, which I've just told you to remind them of. It's almost as if Paul sees a a golden line running through the Bible of the person and work of Christ, and Timothy is to stay on that line, proclaiming Christ and Him crucified from all the Scriptures. He is to stay on that message at all times, not deviating from it, becoming preoccupied with the kind of vain shadow that might make a name for him that would leave him ashamed before God who's entrusted him with his words. 
You see how all this, this works together? He, he's saying, don't engage in those kinds of words, Timothy. Don't swerve from the truth, but cut it straight and stay on the main line of the Bible's main theme of Christ and him crucified, reminding them of him. And as you do that, not swerving from the truth, then you will rightly handle the word of truth and so please the one you serve. Saying, don't worry about pleasing men. The only one you need to please is God. And you do that, according to this passage, by reminding them of these things, rightly handling the word of truth by pointing God's people over and over to Christ, who is the truth. The kinds of words we need at the church are not the uncertain words of fault-finding theological cynics, but the sure word of truth that is Christ and him crucified. In fact, I thought of that last week as we uh, welcomed our brothers in, into the church, that as they've come to embrace the Reformed confessions, they would always remember that at the heart of those confessions is Jesus. As they would tell, that's why the charge that we gave you last week was to remember Jesus Christ. Sometimes, unfortunately, people become reformed. They, they come into a, a new theological tradition and, and they forget about Jesus Christ, thinking that, that now we need to move beyond the basics and only focus on what distinguishes us. That's the very thing that Paul is trying to get Timothy to avoid. Let your words be focused on the main thing, not majoring on minors, but rightly handling the word of truth by pointing God's people to Christ, who is the truth. Avoid the irreverent babble that distracts from this. Verse 21, cleansing yourself from that so that you can be useful to the master and ready for every good work. It's by preaching Christ, not questionable speculation, that we are useful to the master. Now Paul is here charging the leaders of Christ's church to not be those of a party spirit or, or to be theological innovators, but to be stewards of the gospel that Paul preached to them in the presence of many witnesses. It is in that way that God's people will be made ready for every good work. You see that phrase at the end of verse 21. As you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, as you, you do these things, remind them of this, rightly handle the word of truth, then you will be ready for every good work. And it's interesting, you can, you can kind of trace that theme throughout 2 Timothy where it will come up again in 3 verse 17 where as he's talking about the word of God that's, that's profitable for teaching and correction, he says in verse 17 that the man of God may be complete, equipped or ready for every good work. According to the end of chapter 3, how is the man of God made, made ready for every good work? By proclaiming the word. The word that in 3 verse 15 he says is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. In other words, it's in avoiding vain speculation and, and preaching and hearing the gospel from all of scripture that God makes us ready for every good work. And so the kinds of words we give ourselves to are not the vain words of irreverent babble and quarreling, the, the youthful passions that Paul tells us to flee from in verse 22, or the foolish controversies in verse 23 that breed quarrels. But the kinds of words we give ourselves to are the life-giving words of the gospel, both in what we proclaim positively and also in how we correct negatively. 
That's what Paul speaks of in the last five verses. He, he says, flee from that, but pursue righteousness, love, peace. Verse 20, 24, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone and patient. Even enduring the sinful responses of those you teach with long-suffering, not becoming resentful, but forbearing. Correcting your opponents with, with gentleness so that God might grant them repentance. Here Paul is calling Timothy not only to life-giving, Christ-centered words in what he teaches, but even in how he corrects. What is true of the message that it's to be filled with Christ should also be true of the method that it's to be filled with Christ. Even the very way he corrects is to be consistent with the character of the one he proclaims, filled with righteousness, faith, love, and peace, verse 22. To be kind and patient, verse 24. To be gentle, verse 25. So that through him, gently and patiently pointing them to Christ, God might grant them repentance and lead them to a knowledge of the truth so that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. It's a very powerful statement there that we we shouldn't overlook. A very powerful statement about the seriousness of this kind of fault-finding party spirit that ignores the gospel. Paul would have us to understand in verses 25 and 26 that those who do this have been, to, to some degree at least, captured by the devil to do his will. And yet amazingly, this then moves Paul to sympathy for those who are caught in this snare. The kind of sympathy that that leads him to gentleness and patience to not quarrel or cry aloud in the streets, but to have the same character of Christ who is gentle and lowly. To not correct the haughty spirit or to be brash and rude as we can sometimes be, but to have the same humble spirit as the one we proclaim. John Stott says this is the demeanor fitting the Lord's servant because it resembles the servant whom we proclaim. So meek was he in his ministry that he would not shout or make a noise and so sensitive that he would deal gently with people whose courage was bruised and whose faith had burned low. He would never break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick and when people rose up against him, he did not resist or retaliate, but he gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those who pulled at his beard, his face to those who spat on it and eventually allowed himself to be led like a sheep silently to the slaughter. Such was Jesus, the Lord's servant par excellence. This same meekness and gentleness of Christ must characterize all who claim to be his servants. For you see, this is the very opposite of a fault-finding critical spirit that Paul condemns. And so as he calls Timothy and the leaders of the church to combat this kind of thing, he says, you combat it not, not by hitting them over the head, not by answering a fool according to his folly and so becoming like them, but you combat it by preaching Christ calling them to repent and and doing so with the very heart of Christ, gently, patiently, lovingly, in sympathy toward those who were caught in the devil's snare, hoping and praying that God would lead them to repentance. This passage calls us not to use our words to fight, but to save. Not to use our words to hurt, 
but to heal, to point people to the one in whom is salvation. And to do so in both the content and the conduct of our speech, in both ways reminding our hearers of these things. Jesus Christ, the son of David who died and rose again. So that we can even be mistreated by those we serve because we know the resurrection is coming and our cross will lead to a crown. That's what can lead Timothy and Paul to this kind of forbearing spirit pressing on in preaching Christ. It'd also be so for the, the leaders of Christ's church today. And as it is, may, may God make all of us into a people who are not fault-finding critics who major on minors, but servants who study to show ourselves approved, cutting it straight along the Bible's main theme of Christ and Him crucified, cleansing ourselves from what is dishonorable so that we might be useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This passage calls us to see the kinds of words that make us that. Calls us to see, to, 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 to see the kinds of, of people he wants us to be and the kinds of things he wants us to focus on. Kind of, of words that he wants us to speak as those are made of the image of a speaking God. And so in whatever spheres of influence we have with, with our children or with our neighbors elders of their districts. He wants us to be people who image him by speaking words of life that focus on him and not vain words that focus on ourselves. May God give us grace to do that for Christ's sake. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us a people who do not quarrel about words and give ourselves to foolish controversies and irreverent babble, but who are unflinchingly committed to teaching as a church, as elders, as parents, and as people in this world, the good news of Christ and him crucified, risen from the grave. That both in the content of our message and the conduct of our message, patient, gentle, and kind, you would be pleased to draw men's repentance. Lord, we know that is the burden of this book of 2 Timothy, the gospel going forth. And so we pray that you would cleanse any of us who have have been given to this kind of of fault-finding pride. Know that all of us have to some degree. That you would forgive us for Christ's sake and conform us to his character. In so doing, making us useful to you, the master of the house. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.